0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode of The Grape Nation is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com backslash heritage to stock up.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
1: Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Raj Vedia. We'll talk to Raj about fine wine, fine dining, big anniversary coming up, and a lot more. We'll taste the Beaujolais for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Raj Vedia grew up in a family obsessed with food and wine in Bombay, Singapore, and of all places, New Jersey. Raj cut his teeth in New Jersey, going from bacon bagels to pouring the finest burgundies. He went on to work at some of the best restaurants in the country, including Crew, Per Se, Gary Danko, and Seeger's, while receiving his, his advanced certificate and diploma in wine, Raj is the head sommelier for Daniel Boulud's eponymous Daniel restaurant in New York City and oversees the wine program for the uh, Dinex group, which is Daniel's restaurant group. Um over at Daniel, he oversees four psalms and a massive wine list at this legendary restaurant, which will be celebrating its 25th anniversary. Welcome to the show, Raj. Thanks for having me. Did I get that intro right? That was pretty good. All those places. All right. So let's talk about that. So let's not assume everybody knows everything about you. <laughs> so I want you, because I hope not. <laughs> you have an interesting past, I want you to give us a quick background. Because I think it it requires time, but we don't want to take the whole show up. Naturally. Um, About your journey in life and wine that got you ultimately to where you are, which is the Danielle Dynex Group.
3: Sure. Well, as you touched on, my family uh, really loves food and all of my memories. And I really only understood this in retrospect. Uh, all of my fondest memories about time with my family and growing up often had some food component to it. You know, we would go to a new city. My parents loved to travel, so we got to see quite a bit of the world. Uh, and everything was decided upon on the basis of one anchor, which was where are we having dinner or where are we having lunch, you know? Uh, and that, that informed me and uh, informed my choices as I uh, sort of made my way through life. Uh, I started working in restaurants when I came to the states. I, I was actually born in the states, but uh, grew up in Asia. And when, when I, did
1: you move states? You uh, know,
3: I went to India when I was a toddler. Okay. Yeah, uh, arguably was born here per, for the purpose of the American passport. Okay. <laughs> My parents were living in, in the states okay. at the time, but but had intended to move back. And uh, when I got back, I was a teenager, and uh, I didn't have a, a driver's license. I actually. The concept of driving a car if you're a kid growing up in India or Singapore is very far removed. Uh, not like the state. Not, it's, it's, a, really? it's a scary place to drive. <laughs> uh, even today, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure. In Bombay. Uh, so uh, you've tried to find employment uh, when you arrive in the U.S. Uh, so that you can pay for your women fancy. Uh, And the only thing that I could find was either the pizzeria down the street or the bagel shop further down the street I was ambitious so I went to the bagel shop. Also, it seemed kind of like fun hours. It was bizarre I would start working at 3 in the Early. morning, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, work with this odd Polish man who never had a cigarette not uh, dangling. dangling out of his, uh, his mouth, uh, even uh, as his arms were inside this 900 plus degree oven. Anyway, uh, working in restaurants started from there. And uh, I ended up in the wine business somewhat backwards, uh, found an interest in wine, a love for wine, actually left the restaurant business after I graduated college briefly, but realized that, uh, the, the path I'd chosen wasn't for me. So when I went back to the restaurant that I'd been working in, I said, can I have my old job back while I figure out my life? And my boss more or less said, well, I don't have your old job, but I need a sommelier. I said, well, I don't know that much about wine, so I'd love to learn about this. Uh, I'm up to the challenge. What do you think? He said, well, you better figure it out. Here are the keys. Wow. All the best. So uh, I spent a big part of the early part of my career, and actually much of it, uh, backpedaling out of pretense. Right? You know, <laughs> right. I, I spoke to a group of sommeliers a couple of years ago and tried to explain that and had maybe... A 35 people walk up to me afterwards and thank me for having said what they've thought for so right. much of their career. <laughs> Too many people experience it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the notion of expertise in a field as complex as wine is, right. is pure and utter nonsense. Uh, but th- that's what it takes uh, and so I faked it until I made it. Clear up two things for me. When you
1: came back to the States, family was... We, we were together in you New Jersey. You all came back together? together? My
3: okay. sister was at uh, Rutgers okay. uh, already and she, she'd come ahead while we were still living in Singapore so we ended up here. Uh, collectively.
1: And then you said, you know, you got into wine and you pursued it. But what was, you know, the family food thing was,
3: but what was the time when you realized, you know, okay, I'm going to do this wine thing. You know, I started paying attention to wine as a waiter. Okay. Uh, Well, you know, a lot of the restaurants I worked in when I was uh, getting started, had things like cinnamon toast and, uh, bottomless cups of coffee on the menu. Uh, many had jukeboxes in the smoking section. Uh, <laughs> so it wasn't exactly like wine was a big part of my early career at all. Right. In college, uh, I started working in restaurants where, you know, the alcoholic beverage selection, uh, finally went beyond bud long necks and, uh, and you know, rum and Cokes. Into what kind of rum would you like in your rum and coke? Right. <laughs> it, was, it was baby steps along the way. Brand names. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, went to college in New Jersey. There's definitely, you know, in a, a, a small city, a lot of restaurants that, had very boring, simple wine lists. I worked in an Ethiopian restaurant where, clearly, the (laughs) southern rep had written the wine list. Right. Uh, uh, You you know, everything either sounded African or actually was from Africa. Right. uh, uh, Or Chile, for some reason. Uh, (laughs) uh, And then a couple more ambitious places that had some real wine on the wine list. And I quickly learned that if I could sound intelligent as I spoke about them, regardless of whether or not I knew what I was talking about, I would probably sell a more expensive bottle of wine, which would translate to my bottom line. And so I am motivated of, to Part do it. of the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a way a lot of people uh, my generation and prior got into wine is that y- it was a skill you needed. And right. I think you see that uh, maybe less so with the the emergence of uh, sommeliers as being such an important part of the restaurant.
1: Right. So you said you went back to one of the restaurants and the guy said, I don't have a sommelier. So really, that was the wine-centric beginning. For sure. And so that, there's that was a good restaurant. In was, Jersey there's more too. to be said
3: about that. I mean, it was a All great, it was a great to restaurant. To it was a great restaurant that I started working in and, and, uh, originally worked in the garden. It was called the Ryland and it had a, a still, organic there, right? Garden. It is, but it's a different universe now. Right. Uh, the old, old previous owner, uh, doesn't have the place anymore. It's not as ambitious as it used to be. I don't know if they still have the garden, but there was a five acre organic garden where I started working for the summer. Uh, working in trade, I didn't get paid, but I could take any vegetables I wanted. And I, I just found it interesting the the notion of farm to table in a real concise and clear way. The chefs used to come down to the garden every day to pick their they, they herbs, herbs. They were her early herbs. at that. They were. They I were. I mean, Thomas
1: uh, Keller was doing it Thomas is, across I the did, street with a small plot. Now he has Thomas
3: like the, got his garden, I, I would have to say, if it had to be dated much, much later because right. Craig Shelton started this project right. Craig in was pretty the pretty 90s, uh, well before Thomas had, had right. even bought the laundry. So so uh, this was definitely one of the pioneers, although it's long since forgotten if it was ever known by a lot of people. Right. Uh, and also, the other thing that people don't know maybe much about that place is that it had an amazing wine cellar, and that Craig Shelton, the owner and chef, was a great had a great palate and had a great love for wine. Uh, and so he, he taught was, me a great. He deal. was an
1: early influence. Huge,
3: yeah. And and in fact, as I look back on my career. It wasn't until uh, what I'll call the modern day that where I really found myself finding mentorship and, and direction from people in the wine business. Prior to that, I mostly learned from chefs. And that's the old generation, too, to some right. degree. Uh, that's why it's important for me to continuously work for chefs who actually know, uh, not just know about wine, but actually care about wine. Uh, and I'm lucky to do so today. Right. Well, anyway, so the Ryland Inn was a great restaurant, had a great list. I started taking over the wine program there at a moment which was inopportune for the restaurant and business was very much down, a combination of the the slightly delayed post-9-11 downturn in business that, that affected that part of New Jersey, and also the legislation which uh, curbed expenditure by uh, pharmaceutical companies, which... In the old days, used to take doctors out and they wine were infamous and dine They that couldn't stuff. do that anymore. Right. And the Merck International campus is, is right next to the restaurant. So that Jersey's was a big part a pharmaceutical of, state. It was a big part of our yeah. our, our private dining business and our, our business in general. So the only positive thing about that was positive for me. And that was the fact that we didn't really have a budget to buy wine, but we had a shit ton of wine in the cellar. (laughs) And so I got to work with a lot of stuff either by the glass or in the wine pairings, uh, that you wouldn't normally be able to pour. And that included me having experiences like opening, uh, you know, bottles of quote unquote off vintage Obreon to pour in a tasting menu and learning about the development of an old wine from a cold vintage and how it changes in, in the bottle, in the decanter. I learned about German Riesling there and found a great love for it. You know, wines from the 60s and 70s that they had that were in amazing wow. shape. Wow. And uh, we would pour them with foie gras. Wow, Not Perfect. It, it, was, right? it, was, it was lucky for the guests and, <laughs> yeah. for, uh, and for me that I didn't know any better.
1: <laughs> wow. It's some pretty good exposure. So you leave Ryland... After getting exposed to some good stuff in about 2004, yep. and it's pretty much off to the races as far as well, uh, pretty good places.
3: I, for sure. But, uh, you know, I spent some time traveling, actually. Uh, I worked for a winery in California briefly in hospitality, uh, Robert Sinski Vineyards. One uh, of which, the few bio, biodynamic. Yeah, certified biodynamic way back then, yeah. too. Um, and, uh, and great people. Yeah. Very nice wines. And uh, I also worked, as you said, at Gary Danko in San Francisco. California and I didn't vibe that well at that time. It just seemed like it wasn't working out. Why'd
1: you go out? You just thought the opportunity. California
3: Dream to, is, is like a palpable thing for every idiot in New Jersey. It's like the notion that the other coast more is better. More Jersey than even New York? Uh, <laughs> okay. Even more so, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not until you get there that you realize you can't swim in the Pacific. And, right, and right, you, right, And you miss, you know, the Jersey Shore. Uh- <laughs> so you get the hell out of there. Well, it was also just, it felt like an appropriate time. I, ha- I owned a car. I had nothing better to do. Uh, I'd never really seen much of America, so I got to drive around. Uh, It was a great experience. Uh, I didn't love California at that uh, juncture, so I I decided to look around, and I ended up uh, getting introduced through Craig Shelton, the the chef I had worked for previously, to Gunter Seeger, uh, kind of in a backwards way. And Gunter was in Atlanta at the time at his uh, eponymous restaurant, and I ended up moving there. I I took an interview with him. He offered to fly me out to have a conversation. I said, Sure, I've never been to Atlanta. There's no way I'm going to move to Atlanta, but I'll check it out. And uh, I ate in his restaurant, and I was so blown away that I decided to move there. I worked for him for a year before I moved back to New York. I worked for Thomas for a couple of years at Per Se. I worked at Crew, uh, which was both a wonderful experience because of the people I met and, and the relationships that have grown out of that, uh, but it was also somewhat ill-fated in that my first day was the day the Lehman Brothers crashed. And if oh, there ever boy. was a restaurant that was built for the Wall Street set pre-08, Crew was it. That was uh, it. The, so, the
1: wine list.
3: I mean, just describe you know, the size of that wine list. It was bonkers. I mean, two leather-bound volumes, uh, over 4,000 selections on the list, but... Uh, there must have been 10,000 wines. Private U- collectors wines.
1: had turned their wines over. Right? In
3: fact, it was all the collection of the owner of the restaurant. It was all one collection and and an epic one. I learned a lot from that guy about how to buy wine, how to focus on producers, how to support producers and understand the give and take. Uh, things like you don't just buy only the best vintages from small growers. You have to support them and build them up and recognize that there's a place for all of their wines on, on the list or find a, it, find it, a use for it. It's more about
1: supporting the guy, not just getting trophy It's once. not a
3: one-way street. Uh this good is thinking, th- th- right? Especially with the small-time farmers. I mean, uh, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time visiting Burgundy uh, which was a big focus of their list at Crew, and, and right. certainly is at Danielle. And, man, you know, uh, they make so little wine. And you, you see the prices on some of these bottles here in New York. You go and visit the guy, you expect to see a Jaguar and, you know, <laughs> a couple of fancy watches. And uh, if he got another, you know, 50 euro, he'd probably go out, buy a nice new pair of uh, short shorts and bring you back change. Crazy. <laughs> They're did pretty you, humble people. So Did you leave Crew or did Crew close uh, while you were No, there? no, Crew still open when I left. Uh, again, the writing was on the wall and the restaurant was right. very busy. Uh, and so I had gotten word and wind, uh, actually through Michel Couvreau, who I worked with at Crew, who is now uh, head sommelier per se for some years, uh, right. director per se. Um, he had heard uh, through the grapevine, probably because uh, he was approached for it, uh, uh, that Danielle was looking for a head sommelier for the flagship restaurant. And uh, I thought that that seemed like a perfect fit and a perfect opportunity. So uh, lucky me. Uh, It took a little bit of conversation over the next few months. But I ended up starting to work at Danielle in May of 2009. So So you're going on almost 10 years.
1: Nine years this year, yeah. And not intimidated by a program or a list like that because Crew it was a tiny list
3: compared to crew <laughs> well, right <laughs> i mean that's no, less crazy. than half so you were more than exposed prepared and ready also frankly crew was probably the most casual restaurant i'd worked in for almost 10 years at that point so i was very excited about being in a more formal fancy environment crew was a, a nice posh restaurant but you know it was downtown it wasn't right. very formal in its service and 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 i had Always spent time for, uh, for, well, not always, but for many, many years uh, working in that environment. And I really craved it. I I preferred it. I like working in fancy restaurants. Uh,
1: I mean, I would say Danielle is the epitome of what the definition of fine dining is, right? Right.
3: Danielle, the restaurant, I think, is is very, very good at that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny because Daniel, and, and the person... somewhat seamless. Daniel, the person, is almost, uh, while being such an elegant and refined human, he's also such a down-to-earth, like, you can feel the farm boy uh, aspect of him very closely so as that, you get to know him. That trickles And that inspired, down. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, inspires in a great way, the the sort of honesty and realness of that restaurant. And that, and that really appealed to me.
1: So you get to Danielle 09. You're presently there. We'll get to Danielle because there's a lot to talk about. But while I have you here, I want to talk about a bunch of, you know, wine-related things and all that. to um, <laughs> I want to get your take. Um, I'm curious, a guy like you that travels a lot is exposed to, you know, one of the most prestigious lists. What is currently exciting you in the wine world today? And that falls under trends, regions, wine, winemakers. I know you have to think about Danielle, that market, that wine list but I know you don't just think
3: about that. There are other... Absolutely. Th- so uh, tell me w- what's exciting you today. Well, uh, to be clear, we have so many different kinds of restaurants in our group, so I, right. get, I am lucky in that I don't only have to work with fancy... Keep correcting of, me, because I keep
1: that, saying just Danielle. <laughs> so. uh,
3: that, that's okay. Uh, but that's a relatively new thing for me, and I, I'm really enjoying it, because uh, there was certainly a period where I didn't get to work with uh, new exciting regions and things like that. Um, I'm a bit of a bore when it comes to my uh, love of new, exciting regions. I think they're new and exciting to some people, but uh, they're all—they often end up be showing as classics. I think there's been a huge resurgence in interest in the Mosul Valley of late, especially the dry wines of the Mosul Valley, which are becoming better in quality. And uh, you know, uh, I remember when this restaurant, uh, which is to say, uh, Robert is. <laughs> uh, right here, first opened. You, you know, uh, there was no riesling to drink with the pizza, and the pizza was so good, and I was like, well, you got to have riesling. Right. Uh, is like perfect uh and today it has like one of the Amanda lists, was uh, here uh, who, and now Hugh Crickmore who, 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 the, a huge way, who exactly. you know continued so so there's been more interest and I think that that's been a huge uh boon uh and the Mosul Valley is an amazing place one of some the favorite places I Liesling. know and, and you know pretty I, stereotypical I, it is stereotypical well I'm old what can I say <laughs> you're not that old I'm old fair, fair you're not that <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you nice well, brush off uh, yeah, I know every sommelier says that they like Riesling and the reason that they like Riesling is because it's the most accessible and it's at the same time the most uh, you know, breathtaking or the right. easiest to pair with food. But for me what I like most about the Mosel specifically, and I, I should say that, like you know, everyone loves Riesling. I'm not a huge fan, and I don't drink very much of Austrian Riesling. I respect it. I know what quality it is, and I re- think that there are some great wines there. But I, I literally, at this point, probably own two bottles of Austrian Riesling in my cellar. I own zero bottles of Grüner I have thousands of bottles of German Riesling. Don't like uh, it. It's just now, not my bag. But the Mosel specifically is interesting. But
1: tell, just mention some other reasons, like Nahe, and uh, there are different regions. There's uh, right. a handful. Of the, Mos- r-
3: the Mosul area is particularly special to me because Why? of that high wire act of uh, acidity and ripeness. And then ripeness used to mean sugar uh, realistically, and it doesn't anymore. I There are some producers I love from the Nah from the Rheines and Rhinegau. Right. even. Uh, it's not like I have no uh, interest in those wines. But for the sure. Mosul is the But the, the Mosul spot. is a special place for me. Another region I think is super interesting today Uh, which got more attention than it ever has, uh, probably, is the the Savoie, the Haute Savoie. There's really interesting wines, both white and red, that uh, are starting to get my attention. And, you know, it's not an area that I paid a lot of attention to in the past either. Savoie is in France? Exactly. North? It's actually eastern France. Eastern. So uh, think uh, of the foothills of the Alps and going up into the Alpine. Right. Uh, Very interesting What type of grapes you know, reds and whites? I have a preference for the whites, let's say. And the the Appalachians, for example, of Xinyan uh, okay. is pretty interesting. Uh, there's a lot of diversity. Uh, and so you can't say that the whole region produces great wine because it's actually pretty big and quite right. varied. But the stuff that I'm tasting, I'm, I'm finding very interesting. I think that uh, the most interesting place for, like, new expressions of wine that we've probably seen in the wine world uh, in the last 10 years has got to be America and California specifically, because the world of California as a wine producing region at the quality level has changed so much. Right. And the con- conceptions of the regions and what they represent, what styles of wine should be made there, can be made there. Uh, in you know Santa Barbara area, and also in the Sonoma Coast, even further north than uh, Mendocino, it's changed so much. And I you, mean, there's, you some, there's and super I, interesting stuff going you on. You
1: and I were invited to a little talk that Dan Petrowski organized about the future of Cabernet. Totally, and, yeah, and that to was your fascinating. point, I think the reason he asked is California is changing so much to what you were saying that you know is the old heavy cabs, the cults. You know, there's more restrained stuff. You know, what is the future of that? Because Dan and Steve Mathias and all those guys are planting all these crazy varietals, you know, and doing a great job. Right? Yeah, a guy
3: like Dan is getting to be more well-known for his uh, Italian white varieties than he is for Cabernet. You know?
1: So you throw California in there as an exciting I region. find it very
3: exciting yeah. because anytime that there's a real critical thought being given by players who are making a difference in not only uh, the quality level of the industry or the base quality level of the industry, but also in uh, the conceptions of the market. Know, right. The market is looking for different things from California today than they were right. ten years ago, it's and that that me- that suggests you know that something's actually happened. There's been a big change. John Benet wrote that book that had a huge influence, right. I think. But he wouldn't have anything to write about if the people weren't already doing it. I, so. I agree with that. Um,
1: let's go back to Mosul for a second. Give me a couple of recos. Uh, wines, you know, think more available, sure, yeah. quality
3: maker, one of my favorite, not the
1: cheapest, not the most well, expensive. Well, one of my
3: favorite, uh, the, the beauty of, uh, the Mosul is outside of, you know, three or four, uh, top producers, everything's dirt cheap. So, uh, it, it'll be pretty inexpensive, uh, right. in the big scheme of things. Uh, some producers that I think are, are really special, uh, two, uh, that, uh, I focus on quite a bit and I like to drink their wines, uh, Uli Stein, Ulrich Stein who's uh, making very pure style of Riesling, really a, a, a bright person, a bright mind. Uh, not a young guy, but so open-minded and has produced some of the more beautiful expressions. He makes is it, it a Ries- newer winery, relatively, <laughs> or it's been around? It's uh, a very old winery. Okay. Uh, and uh, Uli's probably uh, approaching his 70s, if he's not already 70. I, I forget how old he is exactly, but uh, he, he has the energy of uh, very a, cool. a, a kid. and. cool. Uh, the wine that I like quite a bit, especially on the the more accessible in, in terms of quantity and also right. price, is, is called, uh, I think, the Blue Slate. It's so delicious. Blue Slate? Yeah. Just a touch of sugar. That's the name of the, the wine.
1: wine. So if you went exactly. into a good, you know, Brooklyn wine store and said, do you have Blue Slate? I think They'll it's probably easier to about. find in Brooklyn than most yeah. places. Well, Brooklyn's like <laughs> ground zero for that type of thing. Tell me,
3: what about, can you do the same for me for Savoie? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, there's a... Producer known as uh, Domaine des Ardoisiers. Uh That's the best pronunciation I can offer because I definitely can't spell it correctly. Uh, I'll but look that, it but up. I'm going to r-
1: guess A R D O I E S E S or something.
3: S I E R E S. Maybe there's I That there. sounds okay. about right. Okay. Uh, I got turned onto these wines here in New York, and uh, I was so impressed. Uh, very saline, salty. They kind of play the the fine line between an expression of like very purishably Or Chenin, uh, when it has that slightly savory edge, uh, but very pure at the same time. You really Mm. get this ocean water sort of sense to it.
1: So a good seafood, shellfish, perfect. You don't have to drink Yeah, but it has enough
3: texture for even richer dishes. Right.
1: Salmon Um, or other fishes and all that. Um, I'll post that. Um, You know, I was going to ask you, and I think you answered the question, you know, do the best worlds and the wines have to be the most expensive? And, you know, obviously Romani Conti, whatever. But there are delicious, there's many delicious, terrific options, yeah. wines, and I think if we had to think a little more, Riesling falls in that category. Savoir. Well, it's a
3: sad truth about Riesling from the Mosul, if you really think about it. It, it is inexpensive, and that's kind of like a, a thing I can't help but mention in, in promoting it. But the reason it's inexpensive is uh, is kind of strange. It's re- you why? See, well, they... They don't have a great place in the market, and so they're not in giant demand. And so they, can, they have this conception that they can only sell the wine for so many euros a bottle. There's vineyards in the Mosul that were considered amongst the top five or top ten in the 18th right. century that are not planted today. They've, they've gone to shrub because there's no young people who want to work it it's too hard to work it's impossible to work with machinery and th- at the end of the day you work that hard and you can only sell your bottle of wine for you know six or seven euro so is it's that, a little bizarre
1: is that marketing and organization and pushing up from the region I mean some places sure do better I, than I'm others I'm sure it's a lot of that yeah, it, it's also I mean, some they,
3: of the German they, sensibility they don't throwing care. throwing more uh, laws and new terms at it to try and fix the problem alright <laughs>
1: so one last thing to that that. Wine's exciting you. So um, those two wines excite you. If you had to walk into, let's take Danielle because it's the biggest, most fancy. What's exciting there or different? I know there's Burgundy's and there's Bordeaux's and Daniel's from the Rhone and you probably have to have the appropriate amount of maybe some whatever else. But what what's the wine there that is exciting or you brought in
3: or is there one? Sure, I mean, well, I I don't know how to answer that because I'm excited about all of the wines I put on the wine list. But Uh, but I know you're excited about the great Burgundies and Bordeaux's,
1: anything out of the box. Something off the beaten path. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what I'm asking.
3: Uh, You know, it's Far from being a nouveau region, uh, no pun intended, but Beaujolais is a big part of that. Uh, Good point. I'm, I'm a giant fan. It's having fan. its time. I drink a ton of Beaujolais. Beaujolais is very uh, exciting to a lot of people right now. People are paying more attention to Beaujolais than they ever have before. Uh, also, the prices of the land and the prices of the the wines are going up. Uh, it's getting into better esteem, right? You know you, what you said earlier about the uh, the in the world of wine, do the best wines have to be the most expensive? The answer is obviously no. However, I think that great if great things become more expensive because they're great and they're in demand, then that's a good thing because as long as it you know flows in the right direction, the, the producers do better. Can have a nicer life because they're producing something special. They make more people happy. You know, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I I, I agree. have no problem with wine becoming expensive when when it's really great.
1: Yeah, it it deserves that for sure. You know, kind of path.
3: Yeah, and then um, besides Beaujolais, uh, uh, I, I think. Uh, on Danielle's list, it could be tough because I, again, like I said, I love everything, but uh, I, I think we do a, a pretty cool job with the uh, sort of those off regions of France or the, the back roads, a lot of stuff from the Roussillon that's inexpensive, right. but really delicious and pure, uh, you know, very stony. Provence. So there's, there's
1: a perfect example of a classic restaurant with a classic list that will have some interesting wines. I mean, totally because of guys like you at the home. um, All right, so those are all good ones. We're actually going to taste a Beaujolais towards the end of the show, and I want to get your take on it. Looking forward to it. Um, Again, we'll talk about Danielle, the restaurant, and the group, and all of that. But I just want to frame in the ten years that you've been at Danielle and Dynex, what are some of the changes that you've seen? you know, in the world of wine in the world and of I, wine. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm like yeah. digging like women in wine, you know, has that changed? Um, natural wines are a big deal, which is less of a big deal, you know, maybe in your world, but tell me, you know, you're going on nine, ten years. What are, if you had to look back at the changes?
3: Well, it's, uh, it's interesting to do that because it's only in retrospect that you see that there's gradations and you feel like one thing's a trend then it becomes uh, a movement that right. maybe it's still there three years later right. or maybe it's not maybe it was a trend after all uh, I think that there's definitely been a, a big movement away from uh, the cult wines of California there's still a group that drink them for sure and uh, uh, it, it's not something that's disappeared from Restaurant Danielle for sure. But uh, uh, in the world of wine, I see that having kind of dwindled a little bit of interest. Right. And I think that California producers who you're are making you're uh, yeah, uh, you so. I, I to, it. You're buying less? Yeah. I don't need to chase it. I don't need to chase it. The prices have kind of gotten out of whack because right. they've continued to go up. Uh, and even uh, as their direct-to-consumer business has grown so much for these, these top Napa Cabernets, Uh, they're taking more of the margin, so they're selling the wines to the restaurants for kind of high prices, so then I have to sell it for obscenely high prices. And so there's very few that I still work with very closely. Uh, Colgan is certainly one of them, because I think the wines are excellent. They've gotten more expensive, but they're also really damn good. So uh, I feel confident about that. But then uh, at the uh, same time, an interest in sort of an old style of California has emerged, and I I quite like that. Uh, People come in Interested in wines from the 70s and 80s before the like the an craze. old
1: gravelly meadow, Diamond Creek's a Diamond, big, a Creek, big or something favorite like of mine, that. Yeah, uh,
3: which, which you might have known before you asked that question. Yeah, well, uh, I,
1: I'm not sure I did, yeah. but that's a good example, uh, Heights or I, something. You
3: know, Diamond Creek and Ridge are the wines I cut my teeth on early in the business. So I'm a huge fan, and those wines today are uh, still inexpensive for the quality that they right. exhibit. Um, Women in wine is an absurd notion as a trend. (laughs) That sounds... Like but a crazy idea, but I guess uh, it's are not women on... getting their due in the business
1: now. New York is a little no, easier. No, women no. are not getting
3: their due in, in any business. Um, Job,
1: salary, treatment. The I whole had a deal, conversation
3: right? with a young woman. Uh, I call her young, but she might very well be slightly older than me. But we're we're uh, contemporaries, and uh, she was in conversation about uh, a position as a head sommelier with a group, and going back and forth in negotiation and. Uh, on one hand, I know that the person who had worked there before her, who was a man, was getting paid a lot more, and they were offering her much less. Crazy. On the other hand, I can also see that the restaurant she had
1: the skills though, uh, 100%, no doubt, right, one hundred
3: percent. But on the flip side, it's like the restaurant's probably not doing that well, and they figured out they were overpaying that guy. Right. Uh, at what point is it, uh, uh, you know? completely even playing field, it, we're certainly not there yet. Uh, Do I had, you see
1: fair movement? I mean, good things towards I think that, it's or I, I think still slow?
3: Uh, well, I think it's pretty slow, but yeah. uh, but uh, my hopes are that uh, it gets prodded along. Certainly, people are talking about things, finally, right. for the first time in my career, really, uh, or at least talking about things openly, honestly, and, and being interested in being part of the the benefits and the change. But uh, you know uh, it's a bit of a believe it when I see it. It's not very long ago. There's a kid who used to work for me. He was like, uh, done pretty well for himself. He doesn't live in New York anymore, but he's got a nice following at his wine bar in the Midwest. And I remember uh, I was hiring a woman to work alongside him. Uh, he was one of my sommeliers, was hiring her to be a sommelier. And, and his uh, thought, uh, he said, I hate to ask this, but like, can she break cases down? I was like, yeah, she can break cases down. She's a human being with muscle. She could probably kick your butt. Uh, just, just even, th- this is only a few years ago. and, and uh, Crazy. It's it's bizarre, but it's yeah. well still uh, very much in the, the uh, dark ages.
1: A selfless promo. June is Women in Wine Month on the Grape Nation. And all our guests every week are prominent women in wine. Fantastic. Because we like to give them a voice and hear what's going on. Um, One last thing about looking back, and then we're going to take a break. I want to talk about Danielle, um, and I want to do our wine list and taste some wine. But just give me a quick take on your take on natural wines. Cool. Personally, and I don't think it's an important thing at a restaurant or a group like yours.
3: We have a, a lot of natural wines on the wine list, but I, some I have, are naturally there, right? <laughs> not they're not there because they're natural. I mean, and, just, and that's pretty much my take on it. Uh, I'm more interested in farming than I am in uh, either sulfur marketing or um, philosophy. Uh, I think that farming is important. I think that clean farming, organic farming is important. I think that uh, biodynamics seems to have a very positive effect on the vines and the wine that comes from it. It could be because biodynamics makes better wine. It could be because the farmers have to spend so much more time in their vineyards in order to be effective at biodynamics. I'm I'm not really sure. Right. But uh, I have much more of an interest in that. I enjoy some wines with very low sulfur. I enjoy some wines with no sulfur. I have no hang-ups about wines with sulfur, sometimes a lot of sulfur. Uh, it doesn't bother me. Pierre of Collin makes some pretty, uh, m- some beautiful wines with a high amount of sulfur, right. and I thoroughly enjoy them. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I-, I tasted some Priory Roque wines yesterday that have zero sulfur, and I thought they were fantastic. Right. You know? uh, so I'm not hung up on it. Uh, and I think that the... The genre or the the movement towards natural wines is probably says more about our collective interest in what we're putting in our bodies than necessarily the philosophic bent of it, uh, but obviously there is a very strong philosophic plan in place for some people who are involved in the movement, and that's the thing I'm probably the least interested. Right. in. Right. Right. Like any movement, there's going to be people like we that. We have a lot of wines that are natural right. wines or mo- fall in that category. Some that, of the
1: most famous wines in the world the, that farmers have been sustainable, natural, organic, you know, growers or whatever. That we've,
3: you know, championed on the wine lists right. in our restaurants. But the reason is because either the people make great wine or because the wines themselves are great right. for some reason or the other.
1: Steve Mathiason was in last week and basically he said it's just as important in the farm, on the farm as it, in, as it is in the cellar. Mm-hmm. And he's a big advocate of that. All right, Raj, we're going to take a break. Um, we're talking to Raj Vaidya. Raj heads up the uh, wine program for the Dynex Group, Daniel Balud's restaurant group, and he's the head sommelier at um, Daniel's restaurant in New York City. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about Restaurant Danielle, their 25th anniversary. We're going to subject Raj to the wine list, and we're going to taste a little wine. So you're listening to the Grape Nation It's no secret that I like being the person who always has some great wines on hand. When I know I've got a few bottles hanging around the kitchen, I feel like I'm ready for anything. Even if anything is just because I never know when friends will drop by unannounced or because it's even a Monday. I also hate that last minute run to the store. Wine was never meant to be bought in a hurry. It's funny how we have so much patience growing the grapes, aging the wine, only to feel pressured when you're staring at the shelf. I use Vivino to scan and keep track of my favorites, but lately I've been stocking up through their web store. They have the best prices and largest online wine inventory, but can also give you personalized recommendations based on bottles you have liked in the past. And I use their premium service for unlimited free shipping. That's an extra bottle's worth of savings on every order. Plus, they have a 30-day free trial. I just grab a few at a time and save them for when the right moment rolls around. You never know when that'll be. Visit Vivino.com backslash Grape Nation to stock up. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Raj. Raj Vaidya from Danielle, Dynex, New York City. Raj heads up the wine program. Raj, I want to talk to you now about restaurant Danielle and you know his group, but let's focus a little on Danielle. Um,
3: so you know Danielle a little bit, right? You I did, do you, know Danielle. You Got to chat with him a I, couple of years ago. I, I, at I interviewed
1: him at Charleston. He is a very approachable, warm, nice guy. Um, he took an interest in the show and me. He pulled me over and had some ideas for this show. (laughs) I mean, not everyone does that. There was just something very kind of down-to-earth and nice about that. And I only have nice things to say. And we email from time to time. (laughs) That's cool. So, you know, it's nice. Uh, And the nice thing is that his restaurant, um, where you spend a lot of time, is celebrating its 25th year. Which is a big effing deal for the category, you <laughs> know. A restaurant, let alone New
3: York alone, fine dining and all that. A restaurant that. that's been in existence for 25 years in New York is a big deal. A restaurant that's been a, uh, a you know a serious success uh, for that period of time is another story altogether. But uh, I think that Danielle, the human and the restaurant, have become really an institution in New York. But. Well, it should be noted that the first time I met Danielle was in probably 2001 or 2002. Before you interviewed? Uh, years before. Right. I went to the restaurant for dinner with my sister. Mm. My sister had a, a, a fancy enough job that she would take me out to fancy dinners in New York. We, we love food, as I mentioned earlier, as a right. family. But my sister and I would... would Be willing to spend more of her money, not my money, right? (laughs) On on fancy meals than our parents. Yeah, she had a real job, exactly. Uh, And uh, so we went to Danielle, and uh, when even the first time I met him, he came over and chatted. I was working at uh, the Ryland Inn at the time, or maybe I just left, and and he engaged so honestly and so truly. That at the end of the interaction, there was no sense that it was contrived or fake in any way. He genuinely connected, and that that's something that means a great deal to me. And yeah. it, and it's so not true common. of him. It's right. not common in, in this world in general. It's definitely not true. Uh, very common in the restaurant business in the. Mm. Uh, so-called hospitality industry there's a lot of masks that are worn a lot of the time Uh, there's a lot of pretense and there's a lot of snootiness and and sort of exclusionary activity but danielle and and i'm guilty of that probably a lot of the time too but danielle is trickles down and
1: i'm sure you grab a little of what he's throwing out
3: absolutely And, and it's an inspiration to work with the man every day to be honest with you because not only does is he a real person and not only does he really genuinely care not only about his staff, but about his customers, uh, his guests, uh, about his uh, restaurants, but also about his family and uh, the extension of all that, the energy that he puts out there. Uh, He also is the chef who I think uh, today, amongst the great chefs, there's many people who are interested in wine, some who like specific wines, some who engage in wine in different ways, but uh, there's no other chef in America at least, that I'm aware of. You've been around. uh, Who knows as much about wine as he does, loves wine as much as he does, and makes it a part of his life. And Danielle likes to tell the story of how as a kid, you know, growing up in the farm just outside of Lyon, his job was to go down to the cellar and fill up the jug from the barrel of wine that was sitting down there. So it's 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 Crazy. perfectly natural. It's been part of his culture, his life since he was a little kid. I probably had my first glass of wine, you know, when I was like eighteen years old. Right. And right. And, and I'm pretty sure it was more correctly pronounced wine as opposed to wine. Right, right, right. <laughs> it well, definitely came out of a jug. Look look where he
1: came from. I mean <laughs> that was kind of ground zero for wine. What does he have a preference? I know he probably would love to taste everything has tried it. But I mean, if he's pulling a bottle himself,
3: if Danielle is pulling a bottle himself and it's, uh, it's for a weeknight or, or, a, or, or a drinking festival, it will be Beaujolais. It will uh, be yeah, Beaujolais. Beaujolais, really? was the, Beaujolais was the local wine when he was growing up and he has a real love for it. Never and, gave it up. Oh, uh, well, how, why would you? I think it's better than it was when he was a kid for sure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or at least when he was a teenager, let's put it that way. But, uh, he also has a great love of the classic wines of Bordeaux. Chateau Aubriand is one of his favorites. Uh, um, he, he really loves Burgundy, and he loves the people of Burgundy, Volnais, uh the wines from D'Angerville. He often talks about them and thinks about them. The and then the Northern Rhone, which is the, the other close uh, neighbor to the homeland, and, and specifically the wines from Cornas and Hermitage, the wines of Chave. He's a great lover of those. Great
1: stuff. Um, so you do the wine buying at the restaurant. When you do that, you're like, all right, let me get a little more of this because he likes that, or that doesn't play into it. <laughs>
3: Well, Let me have enough D'Angerville in the house because... I make sure we have enough D'Angerville in the house <laughs> okay. because we need enough D'Angerville. But if he ever needs a bottle of wine, he knows where to look. So I think, you know,
1: 25 years, the way you described Danielle, I think all those aspects are the reason that the restaurant's been around and, you know, the way he connects with staff, customers, his passion for the yeah. food. It's a, mean,
3: it's a sense of generosity. That That's really what it comes down to. He's a very generous yeah. person. All
1: right, so talk to me... Let's stay with Danielle, the restaurant. Talk to me, because it's a, you know, incredible wine program there. Talk to me about the wine program, sure. program there. Talk to me about size, so, impressive selection.
3: Yeah, we have a big cellar. Uh, uh, I often like to show it to sommeliers who are working in New York, because <laughs> uh, when you show it to people who are working in the Midwest somewhere, they come in, they're like, wow, it's, it's a good amount of wine. The, but th- what they don't notice is what a giant space it is. But if you're a New Yorker, you come in there, you're like, it's, you can't it's help but say,
1: "For New York, how,
3: how many times the size of your apartment is the wine cellar?" Is the, the usual on-premise? On <laughs> on-premise, uh, we we aren't using any offsite storage at the moment, but uh, restaurant group-wide, we, you know, we have right. in the past. Um, it's big, and uh, that's helpful because we buy a lot of wine. Uh, we are able to buy Burgundy uh, on release, which, you know, is vital because the quantities available are minute and also because the prices tend to escalate quite quickly after that uh, and then age them for a few years before we put them on. So 2011s are starting to the, the top wines from 2011 are on the wine list. Daniel. Danielle the, but table. Uh, the 12s and 13s and 14s <clears throat> are in the cellar aging. Um, We have the ability to buy big quantities of uh, very nice wines from Bordeaux, for example, uh, which which is very important because we have a big Bordeaux list and a big Bordeaux-loving customer base. Uh, I have a preference for a classic style, so I I tend to like the wines really 90s and back or prior to the 90s. Although, obviously, we have to have... So those are vintage years,
1: 90s and back. We talked about it off-air a little. Those are better wines and better values... Than the same producers today talk about. That I, I don't.
3: I, I'm not uh, going to say that they're better wines necessarily. How, to did, be clear. You st- how, how did you say? However, it? however, what I would say is that if you were to buy Bordeaux on premiere today as a restaurant, uh, you're either really, really cash rich or stupid. Okay. <laughs> and the reason is simply that you know you can buy can you wines be both? from the 70s. Uh, you can. Oh, I, okay. I, I, I try. You know? Okay. <laughs> uh, you can buy wine from the 70s and the 80s cheaper than you can buy current release Bordeaux, and it's very difficult to taste Bordeaux and know what you're getting once the bottles are finished because if you go to the on-premier tastings you're definitely tasting samples of some barrels but right. these are productions sometimes of wines of hundreds of barrels right. th- maybe even thousands of barrels so what what you're really getting in the bottle could be quite different than what you taste right um what what
1: touches do you think you've put on the list since your tenure there
3: well, the I'm, big difference between the, my predecessor and myself was a, a focus on Burgundy, and it might have honestly been. Uh, it you certainly focus was, more on, I, I focus, on Burgundy. I focus more on Burgundy. It, uh, it could be said that it's uh, because I love Burgundy, which I do, but it could also be said uh, as a matter of habit, which coming from crew uh, you right. know, Burgundy was was borderlining on religion, uh, and so we've expanded the selection quite a bit. Uh, no pushback from the clientele. uh, Like, why? We were ahead of that trend. We were ahead of that trend. uh, And and burgundy exploded. And when it did, you know, uh, at least for a a little while, we had probably had the best list in town because I just kept buying everything and I had access to everything. And not everybody was buying wines like that. I mean, obviously, the top blue chips, it's a different story. But even producers like Dongerville, where uh, I, I had up until recently the. Two, uh, I still have some 2010s in the cellar that we never put on the list. but Today they're trading, you know, crazy, exponentially higher than the, what we bought them for. It cost us money to age them that long, but we're able to get return on that investment because uh, of having been ahead of the game a little bit. Crazy. That and also, I'd say, you know, these fringe areas, uh, uh, focus on northern Rhone, which uh, uh, Jean-Luc Ledoux, uh, who was the head sommelier, uh, rest piece awesome. in peace indeed, uh, many years back, uh, definitely had brought a lot of those wines to the New York market for the first time. But there wasn't as much of a focus when I got there, and we've expanded that. Right. Uh, German Riesling, obviously, has become a thing. Luckily, it's uh, still kind of a low investment point, so right. it's not too much cash. You can have it, have it, it and, and not you know, take a lot of crap yeah, for we it. We use a lot in wine pairings, because it's good with the food, but you have to do some convincing. <laughs> right. All right, talk some Psalm
1: stuff with me. Do you do wine education with your staff? I mean, do you really need to sit
3: down? For sure. With my sommelier is directly, I used to do a little bit more hands-on, but now I actually taken for the group uh, I mean, for sure for the group and even for the service staff uh we do do uh trainings uh periodically it's hard to find the time but it's so important do you have
1: to do you want to we want to We want or if you I, do
3: it it's always better if you do it the more right. people know the better like i said earlier the, the reason i learned about wine is because it had a positive effect on my ability to serve people right and you know, that that certainly continues to be true now uh what I have picked up, and this was, uh, I give uh, credit where credit is due. I learned this from uh, a great somebody I've worked with a few times, John Slover, who runs the uh, the group uh, uh, what, are, what is the name of the group Carbone and the oh that's uh, um, the pool and the grill yeah, yeah I that's Maricobo Carbone, Rich Teresi the, yeah, and uh, Jeff uh, uh, I forget the name of the group yeah itself, something hospitality but uh, he runs that, that program or that, that whole group and uh, he told me when we were working together one time when somebody asked me a question and I laid out all the information for them he said that's a waste of your time you have to teach them to fish. So nowadays, when my sommeliers ask me something about a wine that I put on the list that I haven't really given them a heads up about, uh, my answer is, well, it's going to be very simple. You tell me about it tomorrow, and then okay. we'll sell a bottle and you get to taste it. And I think that that's, that's the way I learned wine. Like I said, I learned from chefs who told me what I could and couldn't buy. But the, uh, most of the time, I learned by reading and then tasting and, uh, you know, de sharing the bottles. To the chef point,
1: do you have to meet with the chef regularly? I mean, the list is the list, and the food is the food, so it's not like things are changing. It's not that fluid. The menu
3: changes constantly,
1: but but I've worked with these guys
3: for nine years, and it's very... uh, it's a very nice environment where I do get to taste food as much as I want, maybe dangerously <laughs> to dangerous uh, quantities. Well, and, uh, we're on
1: been... radio, but Raj is skinny, so. Uh,
3: well, uh, you know, it takes a little work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, but there's definitely uh, ingredients, techniques, and, uh, and presentations that come back or repeat over the years or evolve in a certain way. But having been able to have an open conversation with the chefs allows me to... Intuit a lot of the time right. what, what I need to do in It's an important wine.
1: Yeah. relationship But, for you, but
3: to... you know When we do events And wine dinners And things like that The chefs Jean-Francois Bruel Who's the head chef at Danielle And Eddie LaRue Who's the chef de cuisine Along with Chef Danielle Who's right. really the driving force there we sit together, and sometimes we'll taste the wine. Sometimes we can just talk about it, and we'll talk through a menu. Sometimes it takes hours because they throw out wow. ideas, and I'm just sitting there saying no, 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 really, <laughs> no artichokes, no asparagus. Right. No, asparagus no, no is dill. the worst. Dill, right? dill won't work. Dill's on this. hard too. Uh, but but uh, some those are when they're the obvious things. But if we're talking about very old wines from Bordeaux for a special wine dinner or something like that, it really has to be fine-tuned. But that conversation is very important, and I, I'm lucky to work for a group and with a group of chefs. Who will actually listen? And that comes from Danielle for sure. You know, uh, uh, I will often be found in the kitchen saying to Chef Jean Francois, I I need you to change this this fish to a different thing. They're drinking something that it just makes no sense with. And they'll do it.
1: That's great. Um, I want you to quickly answer this question, then I want to subject you to our wine list. And then uh, we'll taste a little wine. So let's go back to Danielle, because that's sort of the perfect setup. Um, it's a huge wine list. It's a very imposing place. I mean, the surroundings, the wine list. Um, some people are, not some people, there are regulars, there are people who go ahead. Ham- and then there are some people that go there once for Special their location. anniversary. totally. Yeah, yeah, you know, which is a big deal.
3: And it could be daunting.
1: Um, it could be daunting. What do you tell that guy? And this goes to any restaurant, any wine list. How do you, how should the experience be the least intimidating for that person? How,
3: what, well, what, what, what advice can you give to that guy? The, the best advice I can give is, is truly to approach it without fear. because What does that mean? The, well, um, what that means is, is that the, the motivation or the reason for it being so intimidating is based in fear. Fear of okay. looking like you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, as I stated earlier in this conversation, when I started learning about wine, I definitely didn't know anything I was talking about. But I kept talking and made it sound like I knew what I was talking about, and everything was fine. Uh, I, you, uh, there's a fear of looking like an idiot, or looking like a cheapskate, or looking like there, you know, uh, a mark to be taken advantage of. And the reason that I say approach it without fear is that the sommelier's job is not just to open a bottle of wine, put it on your table, put it on your check, and and collect your money. The sommelier's job is to make the experience in a restaurant like this something really special. And we have that opportunity. I do the best I can to speak very frankly and and openly and honestly with our guests uh, who look like they're a little uncomfortable. Uh, that, you know, there's no shame in any of it. I put all this wine on the wine list. I'm going to go out on Sunday to a pizzeria and probably drink like an $80 bottle of Chenin. You right. Know? Uh, it's okay. Don't be afraid of telling the staff, and especially the sommelier, what you like and what you want. So communicate your likes. Right. Absolutely. And but, but but approach you, it without uh, trepidation. You know what right. you are actually in don't charge. Don't BS. Here's exactly. what I you're actually right. in charge. Don't, but,
1: don't tell ch- them what you think they want to hear. We're
3: actually here to bring to you what you what it is that you want. The reason that you're here. And so. Uh, You shouldn't have any trepidation about being very clear in stating what that is. How much you want to spend, what type of wine you like, what type of wines you don't like. If you don't know how to explicitly state that, if you feel uncomfortable with wine terminology, just tell us what specific wines they are. Because very often we'll know one or two of them and we'll get an idea from that and be able to extrapolate into what you like. That's what we do. So those handful of questions yeah. or statements yeah. from the consumer, it's and important to convey. For sure. And Somalis will ask those questions. Any good sommelier will know to ask those questions and don't feel uh, intimidated by those questions either. It's really just a fishing expedition to make sure that we get you what you want. Right. All right. So that's good advice. Um, we got to wrap
1: up soon, but I want you to uh, buzz through my wine list. I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. You don't have to dwell on them. Um, Curious, you know, what you're thinking and drinking. So, what are you drinking now? Are you tasting anything specifically? Is there anything on your table at work or home? Are you boring and it's the same thing? What are you drinking right now?
3: I drink... A good bit of champagne. Uh, okay. Mostly like small that. grower champagnes. That's the bulk of what I drink at home. Give me and my me girlfriend a, love. One or two things you're loving now? Uh, I'm a big fan of the wines from uh, Raphael Baresh. Baresh, uh, B E R
1: E C H E. Exactly.
3: He's gotten a lot of attention of late, and I think the wines are really exceptional. And then uh, Alex Charton and Chartonier Taillet. Right. Uh, his basic Cuvée Saint Anne for how inexpensive it is. It's incredible.
1: So you're drinking champagne, you're drinking those two guys. Give me Raj V's favorite wine and food pairing. <laughs>
3: uh, well, pizza and Riesling, naturally. <laughs> pizza and Riesling, okay. Um, Von Schubert from the Ruver Valley in the Mosul area. All right. And, uh, I, we pepperoni get a lot,
1: pizza. <laughs> we get a lot of pizza and champagne, yeah. which, you know, which is Which works really too, right, well too, But yeah. pizza and Riesling, that's a good one. Um, don't incriminate anybody, not backing you against the wall, but favorite wine, restaurant, and or bar in New York. Somebody that's doing it
3: right, good list, good vibe, uh, Can I give uh, you two? Give me a bunch. Uh, I'll give you a bunch. Cool. Well, my favorite place to go drink for drinking is Company de Vance or Natural. Okay, that Caleb, comes up a lot. That's, Caleb, Caleb's, Caleb's great. made uh, not just a wine list that's really but a approachable, vibe. but a vibe. Yeah, right. and, and it, he made it the place to be. I agree. Uh, Caleb's a good friend. He worked with us, uh, full disclosure, and so obviously uh, I'm partial, but uh, if it wasn't any good, I wouldn't go there. I have a so lot of we, friends who have restaurants I don't go to. So
1: We did wine awards last year and favorite wine bar and restaurant. He's done it. Company and, and that more, place. Was,
3: most guys like you came in yeah. and mentioned him. Well, I, and it's worth uh, giving him the kudos because when the place opened, it wasn't that great, mm. and and when he got on board, it was. Uh, I really said love, yet another one. Yeah, uh, I think the best list in the city for Burgundy, the Rhone, Champagne has got to be the Modern. What Michael Engelman has done there, uh, you know. Uh, maybe five six years ago when, when I had access to these two private sellers and I was just like pumping through the, the best old wine at the cheapest prices I might have been better but today I've got to say the moderns list is killing it and he is uh, he's a force I, I
1: agree full disclosure I'm going there for dinner tomorrow night I I'll I'll hopefully you get back. a discount now <laughs> whatever I don't <laughs> care happy to be there uh, give me Raj's favorite all-time wine is there it doesn't have to be the most expensive or the most famous but what's like you know favorite?
3: Uh, Jerome Provost Le Closerie. Wait, we Le got a ghost. Oh, Jerome Provost. Uh, that's a champagne producer. Champagne. He's based in the town of Gué, which is right. a funny word to say. Spell it. G-U-E-X. Or maybe okay. it's E-U. Um, it's hard to say. I'll look it up. But it's hard to say and to spell. And it, Closerie. Le Closerie is Le the name closer. of the the estate and uh, the single vineyard Le Beguine. I'm uh, notorious in some circles in this town. So Raj's
1: favorite all-time wine is a champagne.
3: I would drink that every day. Okay. It's the only wine where I drink, I'll finish a bottle and very often want another bottle of the same.
1: That's that a, says a lot. That's a good sign. All right, last question, and I think you're capable of answering this. We ask our guests this: best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. My kid's in his 20s, he's going to a dinner party, doesn't want to bring a crap bottle, can't spend a lot. Give me a red,
3: give me a white. You can give me a region, a category, a producer. Start with a white. Okay, well, a white is super easy because if you want to go 16 or under, the answer is definitely Muscadet. Muscadet is the best value in the wine world, period, probably. Good food wine. uh, Even more so than German. And, uh, And you get real wine for pennies on the dollar. For the range, one or two makers. Uh, I think Pepier is probably Peppier. the best. I, I don't know if Pepier fits in the sixteen dollars range, but mm, uh, close, pro- probably pretty close. close. And then uh, there's a, a producer I work with at the restaurant Manoir de la Firetier. Spelled. which is fantastic. F I R I T I E R E. Okay, that's. I a always good one. pick the hardest to spell wine. <laughs> yeah, why? <what? laughs> Give me a red. The red is a little tougher, I guess, but it I is would go, tougher I would go in, go in to uh And I'd go to Beaujolais Village, uh, basic Beaujolais bottling from someone like that's not, that's or not Cru, right? Not a non-Cru, the Beaujolais, right? Uh, like like yeah.
1: Galois, Raison, or is that is it, that, that a
3: that's that's a great one for
1: yeah. from 16, exactly. 18 bucks or exactly. something. All right, so those are good wrecks. We'll post those. Um, we got to get out of here in a few minutes, but Raj, before we leave, every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip this week. We're gonna taste a 2016 Jean follard Morgon, Cote du Puy. It's a Beaujolais from France. This wine retails for about, I think, Forty-five bucks. not cheap, not expensive.
3: Yeah. It's a, it's a, one of the higher end I'd say if, because he's yeah. one of the four or five guys who, who so demands tell, the highest price. What else can you tell me about it? So it's the higher end. It's tell the higher end. end. So, so good to P is a, a single vineyard foyer. It has a fair bit of acreage. I'm not exactly sure how much on, on the Hill. And it's really picturesque and, and particular. You could see it from many different parts of Beaujolais. It's, it's sort of a round top. There's one tree, solo tree that sits on it next to a little hut. <laughs> it's like so, iconic. It is iconic. It's easily recognizable. And, and, uh, has a few different exposures south and east and uh, even north. Uh, he does have some vines, I believe, facing north. Uh, very classic in style. There are old vines uh, that he makes this from. Uh, and it's one of the great, great sort of stalwarts and, and standbys. I, I buy this wine in every virtually every vintage from my own cellar.
1: Good value for the price totally. as far as the quality. You
3: get great wine for $40. Bucks. All right,
1: so let's give it a sniff and let's throw it over the tongue and let's evaluate it. First of all, color. Ruby, beautiful ruby color. Sure. Right, but kind of deep ruby. All right, give me your nose descriptors.
3: It, it, what I love about this wine is that even when it's super young, it already has a very distinct and clear mineral aspect. I'm not the kind of guy who talks very much about raspberries and strawberries, and so I don't really have much to say in that regard. But, there's but a you get minera- a real stoniness, like almost like a, a smoky stoniness, which is typical of good to be.
1: I agree. All right, mouthfeel is sort of a medium. You know, it's 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 not thin. You mean in terms it's, of body.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, not, it's not you know, as, it's
1: unctuous. Not... it feels good in the mouth. Right. Give me your palate. Do, can you talk about fruits now or you don't want to? Uh
3: if I have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean there's there's definitely a presence of fruit. It's pretty juicy. It's got a lot of energy. It's uh Quite a bit of pink granite in this vineyard, and, and that stoniness comes through. I, I don't know if I would identify it as, as granite, but it certainly has like a, a warm sort of stone right. character. Um, Very long on the palate, too.
1: Nice palate, nice finish. Give me some foods that pair well with this.
3: Mm. Coco Vam. Coca van. Uh, it seems like the right day for it, even though it's springtime, All right, So not everyone's rain.
1: eating Coca van. What's the second choice?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose. Well, chicken. I think in general, chicken. chicken would be really Great good. Great chicken it,
1: yeah. wine, roasted, can hold up. Roasted to Roasted or of braised. That. Yeah. All right, So we like this wine. We love this wine.
3: I love this wine. Okay,
1: I love this wine. And I'm too. glad to
3: taste it today because uh, I bought probably. 20 bottles of this.
1: I did the same. Some are in France and some
3: are in my storage and I promised myself I wouldn't pull any more corks, so uh, I haven't had it in a while.
1: I did the same and I usually bring in cheaper wines. This is accessible, but accessible. I just wanted to taste it to see. I'm going to buy more and I wanted to get your take on it. All right, Raj, we're going to wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com That's samatthegrapenation.com Com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. I'm going to post Raj's wine list answers and I'll also post the wine we just drank um, with a little more information. Um, you can follow us on our social media sites. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby. Um, and now you can follow hashtags. Please follow the hashtag The Grape Nation. And on Twitter, it's at BenRuby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. Raj, Where can we find you and all the Danielle stuff online?
3: Uh, uh, www.danielnyc.com is the portal. Uh, If anyone wants to get in touch, uh, you can go to Restaurant Danielle's website, which is that, uh, and uh, you can also access all the rest of our restaurants. Okay. What about you? You post it all over? I I have an Instagram account. Its primary function is uh, to look at, you know, videos of kittens and puppies, but uh, like everyone else, uh, uh, Raj vine. So that's R A
1: J V I N E. -E. Right. That's where you can find Raj. If you just want to, you know, see what he's doing with kittens and all that.
3: I'm not doing anything with them, but (laughs) thank God
1: (laughs) I'm allergic. So, (laughs) all right. I want to thank our guest, Raj Vaidya. Head Sommelier at Restaurant Danielle and the Dynex Group. I want to thank our engineer Vitor and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby and you've been listening to the Grape Nation.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.